0: Police arson squads are investigating the ruins of a New Orleans bar where a fire last night killed 29 persons and injured 15 others.
1: For a brief period of time in the early 70s, the upstairs lounge was a second home to its patrons, a place where they felt safe and free to be themselves in a world that was rampant with discrimination. Then, on the night of June 24th, 1973, someone doused the entrance of the upstairs lounge in lighter fluid and struck a match causing a blaze that would kill 32 people. Until the tragedy at Pulse Orlando in 2016, the upstairs lounge was the single deadliest attack on the queer community in the U.S. on record. And it remains one of the deadliest fires in modern New Orleans history. Police say the bar is a hangout for homosexuals.
2: Homosexuals frequently carry false identification papers, making positive identification
1: of the victims nearly impossible. This is the Fire Upstairs podcast. I'm your host, Joey Gray, and I'm so glad you're here. This June, to commemorate the 50th anniversary, we're revisiting the story of the Upstairs Lounge. We'll talk about the fire, but we're also going to talk about what a unique place the Upstairs Lounge was and why it meant so much to so many people. On this episode of The Fire Upstairs, we'll talk about the Upstairs Lounge, the bar, the people who called it home, what it meant to them and their community, and that awful night that it all came burning down. My guests include Ricky Everett, a survivor of the Upstairs Lounge arson, Clancy DuBose, who was one of the first journalists on site the night of the fire, and Robert Alcamina, director of the documentary Upstairs Inferno. So now that we're here together, let's talk about it. I first came across the story in 2015. I had never been to New Orleans before, and I always wanted to go. It was one of those places that I romanticized in my mind, you know, reading Anne Rice, worshipping Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote, just this long queer history. I was ready to go. And so I went and I visited a friend of mine that summer in the middle of August. And I was met by that heavy, thick, balmy, sexy heat. And I did all of the things that you would expect to do. I went and I got a reading at the bottom of the cup. I walked around the French Quarter. I went to Café Dumont. I got a beignet and a coffee. And I had never heard about the upstairs lounge at that point. I didn't know that I had probably passed the building on the street several times during my visit. It wasn't until I was leaving, actually, carrying my luggage out of my friend's house, that out of the corner of my eye, I saw this book that was just so jarring. The cover image was of a hand reaching up, engulfed in flames, accompanied by the title, Let the Faggots Burn. And I just thought, my God. Mind you, my friend who I was visiting was straight. I'm in the South. I mean, it's New Orleans. It's a very queer friendly city now, but it's still the South in America. I just like a wave came over me and I thought, oh my God, this like homophobic bigoted household that I've been staying in. (laughs) Well, it turns out that wasn't the case at all. This was Johnny Townsend's book, which was a groundbreaking pioneering work, self-published in 2011, where Johnny for years had gone out on his own volition, just doing gumshoe reporting interviewing and speaking with anyone who would agree to talk to him. And Johnny has given us this archive, this amazing resource that everybody of work that's come after owes a debt of gratitude to. And so of course he tells me the story and I take the book and I get on my flight to New York and I'm I'm reading through it and I'm sobbing on the plane. I have to keep putting it down because it's just affecting me so deeply. It's hitting me that I have lost something for all of these years by not knowing this. And so now here you are with me, and I'm sharing what I know with you. The upstairs lounge opened officially on Halloween night in 1970. And the story goes that earlier that year, the bar owner, Phyllis Steve, had come into a small inheritance after the passing of his mother. He was having a drink one day at the galley house with his lover, talking about what he might do with the money. Maybe open a souvenir shop down on Canal. Alice, the bar owner, chimed in and said, Honey, if anyone's got a dollar, they'll buy a drink before they buy a gift. And I love that. I guess so did Phil because he didn't end up opening a souvenir shop. He opened a bar. Phil hired Buddy Rasmussen to run his bar. Buddy had been working down at the caverns and it seems like Phil struck gold when he found Buddy.
0: Buddy Rasmussen, who was the bar manager, who was a very nice gentleman, uh, very entertaining. He's always had a happy face and good jokes to tell and always upbeat and cheerful.
1: That's Ricky Everett. An upstairs lounge regular who was inside the bar the night it went up in flames. By all accounts, Buddy was the heart of the upstairs lounge. His demeanor and his very presence just set the tone for anybody there. He made the upstairs lounge what it was. He would announce people over a microphone as they walked in the bar like Johnny Carson. And he was quick to ask regulars for help, which made the bar feel more comfortable, like a space for everyone. Buddy and his staff fostered an atmosphere of responsibility within reason. Along with a policy of no sloppiness due to overindulging, no drug use or drug dealing was tolerated inside the bar, and they entirely banned, quote, tea room sex, which also meant no hustling. The standard practice for working behind the bar at the upstairs lounge was that you had to know your customers, and if you didn't, a new customer had to be there with someone you did know before they could be served. It was an environment of camaraderie and looking after your own. It was never rated, in its history, One of Phil's biggest concerns when he was opening the upstairs lounge was that it not be known as a place of ill repute. He didn't want his bar to be written off like every other gay bar as a place for hustlers and drug dealers to hang out. And it wasn't, thanks in large part to the set of house rules that he established with Buddy, which discouraged those kind of activities and behaviors. People abided by them, and they were able to establish a reputation and a rapport, not just with their clientele, but with the community.
0: It was always a very nice place to be. Nobody was ever hassling you or uh, no problem. I don't remember there's ever been an argument or a fight with anybody in the bar. And that's why that was my favorite place to be.
1: Another key feature of the upstairs lounge was a buzzer installed on the door at its street entrance. This would alert the bar to folks' arrival, and it offered any closeted patrons an added layer of security. Often it was used for taxis, buzzing to let their customers know they'd arrived to pick them up. The stairwell leading up to the bar from the street wasn't the prettiest, so to cover the pipes and wires, they hung burlap fabric to make the trip upstairs a bit more visually pleasing. Inside, they hung red velvet curtains throughout, and they decorated the walls with posters like Olympian Mark Spitz and that famously seductive shot of Burt Reynolds on a bearskin rug. As a physical place, the upstairs lounge itself was huge. It was made up of three rooms, the first being the bar space, The second was more of a lounge or dance floor area, which they made good use out of considering they were the first gay establishment in the city of New Orleans to be given a dancing license. Which was a huge deal considering the fact that gay bars were raided all the time for breaking decency laws. Laws that had been on the books and remained on the books for years to come. And then there was a third room in the way back that they used for a variety of reasons. The upstairs lounge wasn't just a bar. Of course, they served alcohol and people got drunk there and had a great time. But they also had charity events where they raised money for the local children's hospital and drag shows and Neller dramas, which were affectionately renamed Nelly dramas. They put on plays in this little theater space in the back of the bar. They had church services for the Metropolitan Community Church for a while when it had no other place of worship. It became a place that people returned to time and again, day after day, week after week, year after year, because they felt safe there they could be themselves. It was quite literally a bar where everybody knew their name.
0: That would always be my first place to go to. And when I was ready to go home, that would always be the last place i go to.
1: I think what was so special about the upstairs lounge for people who frequented it was that no matter what day you went or how often you turned up, you were likely to see the same faces. It became a familiar place to be. Not just Buddy behind the bar or Hugh Cooley or whoever else he had helping him that day, but you might see... Mitch Mitchell and Horace Broussard, and Mitch's two sons from his previous marriage, sitting in a booth reading comic books. More regulars at the upstairs lounge like David Stewart Gary, or Piano Davis he became affectionately known, holding court at the White Baby Grand Piano. Lovebirds Reggie and Regina Adams. Or maybe Stuart Butler was there with his dog Jocko, drinking a bowl of vodka and milk at the bar. Ricky Everett told a story about running into an old high school classmate who he didn't realize was gay until seeing him at the bar and being introduced to him as someone's lover. The fire happened on the last Sunday of June in 1973. Nowadays, we think of this as gay pride. The Stonewall Riots happened four years prior, and the gay liberation movement was well underway. Cities like New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles were celebrating the anniversary of the riots, but in New Orleans, people didn't seem to know or care.
0: We weren't having gay pride. It was just a normal Sunday afternoon in the quarter.
1: Like so many other Sundays, on June 24th, Ricky attended church with his dear friend Bill Larson, a reverend with the MCC. Ricky had a beau visiting from Texas then, a guy named Ronnie Rosenthal. Following the church service, they all went to grab a bite together at a place called the Fatted Calf.
0: After we got through eating, we walked around a little bit and eventually got over to the upstairs and just having a great time with everyone.
1: Sundays were beer bust days. Early on, Buddy pitched Phil on the idea of having a weekly beer bust at the Upstairs Lounge to help attract business. It was a happy hour-style tradition that he'd known from the bars back home in Texas. For two hours, you could drink all the beer you wanted for the price of $1, plus a 50-cent deposit on a mug, but you'd get that back at the end of the beer bust. Not only did it work, but it quickly became one of the most popular events at the Upstairs Lounge, and it kept people coming back week after week. The evening was going well, until...
0: There were these two hustlers, and um, they came in to the bar, they had been drinking, they were drunk, and they had this man with them that they were
1: hustling. One of them was a guy named Roger Nunez. Now it's really hard to say exactly what kind of person Roger was, because by all accounts he was dishonest. He would tell different versions of his story to different people at different times. One thing's for sure, though, is that he was a complicated figure. His medical records reflected that he suffered from epilepsy and he was known to be a hustler in the area. Several accounts of that day state that he showed up drunk and huddled himself in a bathroom stall soliciting patrons. He was stealing mugs and pitchers of beer or maybe money off the bar, and he ended up getting into a fight with one of the regulars. Some versions of the story have people groaning and rolling their eyes as Roger walked in the bar that day. He'd established a reputation for himself, so it was a lot of, oh, that guy, what's he doing here? After he got into the fight and was asked to leave, there must have been a sense of relief. No one could have predicted what was about to happen next.
0: And so Buddy last News and told him he had to leave, walked into the door, told him to get out. He turned around to Buddy and said, Well, I'm coming back and I'm gonna burn this place down.
1: Other people in the bar that night reported hearing Rogers say something similar, along the lines of, I'm gonna burn you all out. Things went back to normal for a minute. The beer bust had been winding down and Marcy Marcel was due to arrive any moment now for her drag performance that night. Piano Day would have been wrapping up at the Baby Grand, and Buddy was about to call it a day on his shift. He and his lover Adam were supposed to go out to dinner with Reggie and Regina Adams, though they ran out of cash at the bar that day, so Regina offered to run home and grab their checkbook, leaving her partner Reggie at the bar to finish his drink. Mitch and Horace would have been just about to leave to go pick up their boys from the movie theater. Folks were coming and going just like any other night, while at the same time, someone fitting the description of Roger Nunez walked into the Walgreens, just down the street from the upstairs lounge. And when questioned later, a woman who worked there that night said that this person seemed nervous and drunk. He asked for a small bottle of Ronsonol lighter fluid, but they were sold out, so he bought the next size up. That same person walked back down the street to the entrance of the bar, doused it in lighter fluid, and set it on fire. No one upstairs knew what was going on. I'm not going to lie to you, this is the part of the story that gets super graphic. And no matter how much time you spend with the material, it never gets easier to talk about. For anyone interested in a more detailed account of these events, I would encourage you to read Robert Fiesler's Tinderbox. He does a remarkable job of walking you through the less than 20 minutes that the fire raged on. The fire caught on fast, with so much flammable material in the stairwell the burlap fabric that they used to cover the pipes and wires, the wood staircase. By the time it reached the second floor, it was stuck behind a fire door that would have gained entrance to the bar. After a few minutes, the buzzer started going off continuously probably because of tripped wires. Buddy asked upstairs regular Luther Boggs to go open the door and see what was going on. A burst of fire shot 40 feet through the bar.
0: As soon as he opened the door, the air conditioning just sucked it in and then just shot straight across the bar. Buddy didn't just literally leap over the back. And started pulling people down and saying, follow me, follow me. And I was shot, I was stunned just sitting there. Staring at this fire going across the bar, like, this can't be happening.
1: As soon as the fire entered the bar, it ignited everything in its path. The stairwell that led outside to Iberville Street was filled with flames, and others tried to escape through the windows, but the previous owner had installed metal bars across them so that folks wouldn't unintentionally fall out. Now, those bars kept people inside, in the fire. Some smaller built folks were able to slip through the bars, burning their skin before dropping into the pavement from the second story window. Buddy led a group out to the roof through a back exit.
0: So we were being all taken out through the theater, out onto the roof of the building next to it. When we were going out, Ronnie, my friend from Atlanta, was behind me. And so I turned around to make sure he was still there, and he was gone. And I panicked. And at the same time, Mitch was looking for Horace and realized Horace was still inside. And so Mitch and I both we just didn't think about it. We both rushed in there. And the door closed, and all of a sudden, there was just all this fire. And I couldn't see anything, anybody. I have no idea where Mitch disappeared to, because all I could see was fire. And it was dead silent.
1: By now, the lifeless bodies of bar patrons had piled up against the windows, trying and failing to escape. Tragically, the Reverend Bill Larson was among them, stuck in the window security bars, halfway between the upstairs lounge and Iberville Street. This haunting visual was enshrined by a photographer who was on the scene that night, and it's since become one of the most infamous images associated with the fire. Mitch and Horace never made it out. Their bodies were found embracing one another in the aftermath. Ricky was luckier.
0: I felt something. It felt like a blanket. that just covered over me from head to toe. And I knew, okay, that's God. I knew who it was and what it was. I couldn't see which way to go to get out. and I just felt led to go...
1: Ricky Everett is one of the last remaining survivors of the upstairs lounge arson, and still sharing his story 50 years later. We thank him for his time. And now, a word from our sponsor.
3: Hi, it's Varla Jean Merman, legend of screen and stage in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and beyond. And I'm actually here to tell you about Provincetown Brewing Company, the queer craft brewery you didn't know you needed in your life. Provincetown Brewing Company is a queer craft brewery founded on a for quality craft beer and building community, which means they will always pour 15% of profits into queer and progressive causes that reflect the values of Provincetown. So this Pride Month, just stop with the rainbow-washed products and enjoy a beer like the Bearded Mistress IPA or the Featherweight Light Lager that are truly about the community. Provincetown Brewing Company is available throughout Massachusetts and Rhode Island and now Southern California. Be sure to check out their merch at ProvincetownBrewingCo.com or follow them at Instagram at P Town Brewing Co. Provincetown Brewing Company. We are queer beer.
1: The upstairs lounge was engulfed in flames. With rescue teams still attempting to get the situation under control, crowds watched as the upstairs lounge burned. Local news started to arrive on the scene.
4: We were sitting in the newsroom and it was a very slow night. And the weekend Night City editor, Frank Martin, jokingly said, come on, somebody make something happen. And literally about three to five minutes later, Lois Bergeron, a very heavy set guy, came running in, screaming, fire in the French Quarter, fire in the French Quarter.
1: This is Clancy DuBose, who was one of the first journalists on the scene of the fire in 1973. He was just 18 years old and interning at the Times-Picayune.
4: I scrambled with a photographer and we ran every red light between the Times-Picayune building and the French Quarter. We parked right near Canal Street and as I ran toward the fire, I could see fire trucks and flames and a big crowd of media, TV cameras. I remember looking down at the sidewalk, I saw drops of blood. I looked to my left and saw the building, both sides of the building were engulfed in the flames and just pandemonium. And the first thing that hit me was the gentleman who was pressed against the bars, the Reverend. And his skin was already being burned off and his hair, and and it was just horrible. This was something beyond anything I'd ever seen before or since, frankly.
1: Survivors had made it out onto the street and were receiving on-site medical attention. If they weren't suffering from terrible burns, many of them sustained injuries from jumping to safety from the second story of the building. It was here that so many of the memorable photos of that night were being taken including an image of Luther Boggs, with bits of flesh hanging from his hands.
4: And then I looked to my right, and there was a gentleman sitting on the curb who had been in the building. I remember pieces of his skin were hanging off his arm, and he was crying, somebody please help me, somebody please help me.
1: Buddy made it out to safety with about half the people who were in the bar. His lover Adam wasn't one of them. Adam died with 28 others inside the upstairs lounge. By now, survivors are being transferred to the nearby charity hospital.
4: And one of the senior reporters there said, look, they want you to go to charity hospital. And I honestly don't remember how I got there. I'm pretty sure I ran. I knew where the emergency room was. I just sort of eased my way into where they were treating people. And I watched men on gurneys screaming and writhing in pain and doctors and nurses racing around, frankly, heroically and wheeling more people in wrapping them in gauze, applying some burn treatment, doing all the things you would do in a disaster. I just made notes of everything I saw and started trying to paint a picture. And it says something like, a nurse in tennis shoes wiped blood off the shore while a,
1: uh, an intern drew more from the arm of a scorched patient. Doctors in tennis shoes cut dead skin off the chest of a middle-aged man who moaned steadily while he was rocking on his side. More ambulances arriving with more stretchers, bearing more cut and burned victims. That was the scene at the accident emergency room of Charity Hospital well into Sunday night. A fire flashed through a building housing three French Quarter bars several hours earlier on the corner of Iberville and Charter Street.
4: I knew everybody there was gay, and I wanted to be sensitive. The paper used the language that was used by newspapers and the AP, so I wanted to try to put a human face on this.
1: Not everyone was as considerate as Clancy was. In the days that followed, once it became clear that the upstairs lounge was a bar frequented by gays and lesbians and other socially undesirable people, folks seemed to stop caring. And worse, they began to use the fire as a punchline, one of the more infamous being that those who died in the fire should be buried in fruit jars.
4: From that era, the amount of bigotry. In the newsroom, I heard some of the older men refer to it as the fruit fry, but I remember hearing... People make comments about it, and it would just make me kind of cringe. But as a young 18, 19-year-old kid, I uh, just sort of internalized it. Those who died, and even those who survived and suffered, didn't get any community support at the time.
1: Roger Nunez was identified as a prime suspect the night of the fire, right there on the street in the middle of the commotion. He was taken to the hospital and treated for a broken jaw, which he likely sustained in his scuffle, but he was released and never taken back into custody or questioned again. The case was never officially solved. Although it's been alleged that he may have made drunken confessions to several friends, we'll never know for sure. Because 18 months after the fire, Roger took his own life. In the years since the fire, there have been some people who said that they don't think Roger really meant to hurt anyone at the bar that night. Certainly not cause as much death and damage as he allegedly did. Maybe he was just drunk and angry and seeking revenge for being kicked out. Who knows why anyone would do such a thing? But one thing is crystal clear to me. This fire was lit from within. If it was Roger, then it wasn't an outsider attack, or a hate crime as it's sometimes been mislabeled. The tragedy of the Upstairs lounge fire is that by all accounts, this suffering was caused by one of our own. So in my view, at the very least, it's a reminder to be kind to one another and to look after each other. In the aftermath, when it became clear that this was a gay bar, media coverage all but halted. The city refused to recognize the tragedy. There were no official days of mourning, no moments of silence. Local churches wouldn't even hold services for the deceased, even though so many of them were practicing Christians, pastors, and reverends. Some of the bodies went unclaimed by family members at the morgue, too ashamed to call them one of their own. Three victims were buried in a potter's field in unmarked graves. And to this day, two of those victims still remain unidentified. Only in recent years was war veteran Ferris LeBlanc's body identified by his family, and they're still actively trying to exhume his remains to give him a proper burial. Survivors and friends of the victims had to return to life in the days following the fire and act normal for fear that they might be outed, losing their jobs, upending their lives. 30 years went by until there was an official memorial plaque dedicated outside what was once the upstairs lounge. The City Council of New Orleans only just issued a public statement last year on the 49th anniversary, officially apologizing for their mishandling of the events. I recently got on a call with filmmaker Robert El Camina to ask about his experience documenting the upstairs lounge arson.
2: This is a historic event. It's the largest gay mass murder in U.S. history. And I was shocked that I'd never heard of it. This is a significant moment, not only of LGBTQ history, but of U.S. history. People know about Stonewall. People know about Harvey Milk. You know, they think AIDS. And then we have so much more to our history, and it's not all tragic either. But I thought it was important to tell the story so these victims and their families and loved ones weren't forgotten. Every one of the victims have a story of their own. They're not just names on a paper or names on a plaque. Even though the Upstairs Lounge fire happened 50 years ago, one can't dismiss it as saying, oh, well, that happened half a century ago. Why does it matter to me? Well, because the core issues, the core themes are very relevant today. A lot of the issues are resurfacing. This is part of who we are as a community. And we need to really learn and invest in knowing who we are and where we came from. No matter who is telling the story, from what perspective, I'm just glad that there's a dialogue continuing
1: in the years since The Fire, there have been so many efforts to tell the story of what happened and to honor the memories of the lives that were lost, across platforms in both news media and entertainment. Three books have been published. Johnny Townsend's Let the Faggots Burn, which was recently reprinted as a second edition titled Inferno in the French Quarter, Clayton Delery Edwards' The Upstairs Lounge Arson, and Robert Fiesler's Tinderbox. The Fire has also been the subject of two documentary films, Roy Anderson's The Upstairs Lounge Fire and Robert El Upstairs Inferno. There was even a full-length musical written and staged by Max Vernon, titled The View Upstairs. I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast, and interested in learning more about The Upstairs Lounge, to explore any and all of the resources that exist. Our aim with this mini-series is to give listeners a historical context for the events that transpired, and then bridge that history to our current social and political climate. Because, as the saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that in mind, No work made about a tragedy so profound could ever be as all-encompassing and comprehensive as the victims and survivors deserve. But that's why we must continue to tell these stories, and contribute to the patchwork quilt that is our collective queer history. In honor of their memory, here are the names of those who lost their lives in the fire at the upstairs lounge. As someone born and raised in the Northeast, I'd like to offer a disclaimer about pronunciation, and sincerely apologize if I mispronounce any of the names. Joseph Henry Adams, Reginald Adams Jr., Guy O. Anderson, Joe William Bailey, Luther Thomas Boggs, Louis Horace Broussard, Herbert Cooley, Donald Walter Dunbar, Adam Roland Fontenot, David Stewart Gary, Horace Getchell, John Thomas Golding Sr., Gerald Hoyt Gordon, Glenn Richard Green James Walls-Hambrick Kenneth Paul Harrington William R. Larson Ferris LeBlanc Robert Lumpkin Leon Richard Maples George Stephen Mati, Clarence Joseph McCloskey, Jr. Dwayne George Mitchell Larry Stratton Willie Inez Warren Eddie Hosea Warren James Curtis Warren Dr. Perry Lane Waters Jr., Douglas Maxwell Williams, and two unidentified white males. On the next episode, I chat with Robert Fiesler, author of Tinderbox The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. We discuss how the upstairs lounge fits into the larger arc of queer history and the role the arson played in the fight for queer liberation. It's a fascinating conversation. New episodes of the Fire Upstairs podcast are released weekly. This show is brought to you by Provincetown Brewing Company, Mullen and Getz, Sean and Val, Double Scorpio, and Halloween New Orleans. The Fire Upstairs podcast is produced by Ryan Killian-Krauss and edited by Citizens of Sound. I'm your host, Joey Gray. I'll talk to you soon.